0: Good morning to everybody listening. This is On The Record with me, Kieran Goodaghy, with you until one o'clock today. If you want to contact the programme, you can do so in the usual ways, 53106 for your texts. They will cost you 30 cent or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Goodaghy. We've lots coming up on the programme, but as always, we'll kick it off with our look at the Sunday newspapers. Uh, My panel in studio today, Mick Clifford, Special Correspondent for the Irish Examiner, uh, Ivana Batchik, Labour Senator and Law Lecturer in Trinity, and Larry Donnelly, another Law Lecturer in NUIG this time. Uh, You're all very welcome. Good Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'll just run through the front pages for people at home who haven't seen them The Sunday Independence leads with now for the real election Radker plots Fine path to power after Michael D victory and of course there is Michael D there on the front page with his wife Sabina and they also have a story from Neve Horan um, above the fold Casey I'll join Fianna Fáil and be Taoiseach no less Uh, The Sunday Times leads with Higgins keeps crown but Casey rocks establishment President secures 56% and sweeps every constituency. Uh, their photo on the front page, though, is of the runner-up, uh, Peter Casey. A lot of people talking about him this morning. Uh, the Sunday Business Post has a photograph of Michael D. Michael D. Day. Higgins slays the dragons, but Casey Surge sparks debate and disquiet. Uh, their front page story on the Business Post is about Irish links with Saudi Arabia. ireland Saudi ties in spotlight after journalists' slaughter. Millions in military goods sent to the kingdom and Dublin stock exchange becomes a major hub for Riyadh. And the Irish Mail on Sunday. leads with uh, T-Shock hits back at Casey, don't make a winner out of a loser. Um, so Peter Casey looks like he'll be waiting sometime for that personal apology he's demanding from the T-Shock. And the Sunday World has a photo on the front page: Jackass is their headline. <laughs> and it is a fella lying prostrate on the <laughs> ground in New York with the Sam Maguire on top of him uh, after a night out. And there is apparently. Uh, shock amongst GEA chiefs at the idea that GA fans would get drunk with a GA trophy can you, ima- <laughs> can you imagine it the the indignity of it all we won't mention that club in Kilkenny that was in the headlines earlier in the year for <laughs> celebrating in a different way uh, but anyway look we, we will talk about the presidency I'm sure for, for a, a good chunk of the next hour um, it is on the front page of, of all the papers except the Sunday World there um, and Ivana I might start with yourself he was running as an independent but look he is your party colleague for, for, for many years a year. Uh, what are your thoughts and reflections on well, yesterday?
1: I'm, I'm just so thrilled and so pleased and so happy that he's been re-elected. As you say, I've known Michael D for a long time. I remember canvassing for him when I was a student in the dim and distant past in the late 80s and he was already a formidable political figure then. So he really has, as our slogan during the election put it, been turning up since 1969. He's had an incredible track record. I recall his time in the 90s as Minister for Arts, Labour Party Minister for the Arts. I think still the best arts minister we've had, Incredible achievements, including the establishment of TG, TG Car, and of course, then more recently, you know when we when we ran him as a Labour Party candidate in 2011. Just, you know, I think his appeal to people at the time shone through in that election. And of course, since then, as president, he's really been, inc- I think, incredibly powerful as a voice for Ireland abroad. I think he's represented us with great dignity and integrity abroad. But I think at home, actually, people have huge affection for him. And you really saw that when we were out canvassing for him in the last few weeks. Now, of course, he was running not as a Labour candidate, of course, mm. but as an incumbent, as a president. and. Uh, with the slogan a president for all the people so and it resonated with people and while I know there's been a lot of headlines about the candidate who came second you know one can't lose sight of the stunning achievement this was this was the highest personal vote for anyone ever in Irish history it was amazing and you know to have won on a first
0: percentage wise I think it's about half a percent less than Dev though isn't we were, well it? I, mm-hmm. I haven't
1: seen the final <laughs> results on that so i hold my fire on that but 56% of the vote to achieve that and to be elected on the first count in a presidential election none of us had to Uh, you know anticipated seven years ago that this might happen and I just think it's wonderful to see him now re-elected for a second term it's such an important second term all the challenges of Brexit of course but also the challenges too of commemorating difficult centenaries around the Civil War well the War of Independence and then the Civil War so I think it's really great to see him re-elected and I think he'll do us proud as he has done for the last seven years
0: Larry, lots of talk, uh, and we will talk about it ourselves in a moment, about what does Peter Casey's vote say about Ireland,
2: but what does Michael D's vote say about Ireland? Uh, I think a lot of, I'd echo a lot of what Havana has said. I think that, uh, by and large, I mean, there are people who love Michael D, there's no doubt about that, but uh, there's a whole other category of people who I think look at the last seven years, uh, looked at the, a president who has done a very good job and somebody who represented the country well overseas, uh, and also, I think, uh, really struck a chord with people here at home, and I saw it on numerous occasions. I saw the, the the way Michael D. operates with one-to-one, uh, and these people don't forget that, and it really stuck with them. Uh, and I think that people, at the end of the day, that other cohort of people I'm talking about, uh, they looked at it and said, this guy's done a good job. Uh, it's not broken. Uh, why fix it? And I think that, that ju- their judgment uh, and their faith in his capacity was only enriched by... What I think can only be described as a less-than-inspiring campaign, Uh, I think a lot of people's, uh, if they were, might have an inkling at looking at the others, uh, I think the the conduct of the campaign brought them solidly and squarely uh, back into Michael D. Higgins' camp, Uh, and I think, look, he's eminently worthy uh, of a a second term, uh, and I look forward to seeing what kind of themes and priorities he's going to address while in office. What were his themes of the first term, Ivana?
1: Well, he had come to the election in 2011 wanting to put forward the values of equality, of inclusivity, of pluralism. And I think he stood he stood firm on those. He did uh, a lot of work around trying to bring people into, uh, into uh, well, into the, uh, I was going to say into the establishment. That's probably not the right word, but trying, I think, to ensure that those who feel marginalised were, uh, were, it felt, were made to feel included. For example I mean one of the big things he did of course hosting the Magdalene Survivors uh, celebration or, or, or event in the or in the Auris this year which I know was so important for so many women who'd been through the Magdalene institutions who felt in completely marginalised by Irish society and I think when he spoke last night so powerfully uh, in Dublin Castle and I was proud and privileged to be there to hear it uh, he spoke again about the need to ensure a politics of inclusivity, of equality of uh, respect for others and you know that was really important that those were the values that did in fact have the most powerful effect and most powerful uh, resonance for people when, when they came to the vote in spite of as Larry says what became you yeah, quite an uh, unpleasant sort of campaign with quite you know quite low level sort of arguments and a, a descent into quite unpleasant rhetoric around populist rhetoric yeah. and opportunist rhetoric. But Michael D. rose above that, and I think again you know when he was speaking last night, he talked about needing to build a republic of equality, and I think that's going to be the overriding theme for the next seven years.
2: Yeah, just just to build on that, I think one of the themes uh, that I think at least I hope he will address uh, might be run along the lines of something like the temptations of populism, uh, and I think Michael D. can speak very effectively to that because. Uh, again, although this is a man of the left, let's not forget that he represented a pretty conservative constituency for decades. Uh, and so in many ways, he was able to bridge the divide and talk to people who would have had legitimate concerns uh, around some issues. Uh, I think Michael Deacon is ideally situated to kind of help facilitate that really, really important conversation.
0: Mick, will you rail against Michael <laughs> D. here? <laughs> oh, <he's laughs> I <entitled> talking <laughs> to a <get his> consensus? <laughs> can, I mean, I mean, I, I, I could put it this way.
3: The man did a very good job over the last seven years. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Therefore, being an incumbent, having done a good job, having achieved over that period uh, a level of affection among the country that he may not have had prior to that, I'd suggest. Having done all of that, it would have taken an exceptional candidate to uh, beat him. And it would have taken a bit of a dirty election too. You know, I mean, you'd have, the only the only thing you can really say going against him is the business that the man will be in the his 80s and the latter half of what is a pretty vigorous um, mm. duties in that office. Now, if there had been an exceptional candidate, possibly he could have been beaten as it was the field. It was really... Awful. I mean, if you put about, absolutely, that was a fantastic vote he got. But you have to put that in context. Take away Peter Casey, surge, and you want to talk about that. But apart from that, you've five other candidates, every single one of them below, what, 8% or so. I mean, mm. that is, that's a reflection. And you also have to take into account, there was a perception in some quarters, particularly among those who decided to run, that because Sean Gallagher, had hit on a particular uh, nerve in in in, in the, the country psyche in 2011 when the country was in a very bad place. Yeah. Because of that, people got the impression that this business of running for president involved a bit of popularity and uh, showing that your success and that awful phrase that was used here, being passionate about creating jobs, whatever the hell that has to do with <laughs> being president. I don't know. So that's the kind of field you had.
0: And then you had Sinn Féin coming forward. It implies like, that there's maybe some people who are passionate about cutting jobs or losing yeah, them. Yeah, it
3: implies <laughs> that people who go into business, they wake up in the morning and saying, I want to create jobs. This is my passion. But anyway, the, 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 but then and then Sinn Féin, they, they handled it very badly. Um, Le- 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 to be fair to her, I thought she grew throughout the campaign, but they needed a serious candidate. And to my mind, if they were very serious about it, they needed somebody from outside the party. And so strategically, they were the only political party in it who were going at it and they didn't do a very good job of it. But as I say, unless there was an exceptional candidate, despite all of that, there's no way Michael D. would have had a a serious challenge.
1: Could I just say, I mean, I I do agree with Mick as the campaign wore on. Clearly, uh, Michael D. did rise absolutely head and shoulders above the others in terms of just articulacy and um, conduct and dignity and so on. But I think at the start of the campaign, it wasn't quite so apparent that the other candidates would not be substantial. I mean, it's easy now, now to say in hindsight look, looking at the, the very low rate, rating that most of them got but you know the reality is that Sinn Féin were running a seasoned Political person who had been who had been elected as an MEP for Munster in Leonie Leinster, and certainly I and many others I think expected she would do a lot better. We're, I think she was. She, I, I think they ran, as you say, a very disappointing campaign. I, I think they are the, come out. They do come out of this Sinn Féin as the big losers in terms of uh, it, of such a low proportion of the vote. But that wasn't to be predicted at the start. And indeed, Sean Gallagher I think would have anticipated he would do a lot better. But he, that, he that, that's suggesting that might lead a very
3: good campaign, and I, I would dispute that he's yeah. a very good campaign. He did all right campaign. Yeah, he didn't have a very, he wasn't a great, it wasn't well, a great campaign. I thought he
1: right. ra- I thought it was a really good campaign, yeah. Mick. I mean, I know it's hard maybe to see it from the inside, but I thought it was really good. I thought it was really positive. We stayed po- absolutely positive throughout. We ran yeah, a few weeks ago, a Women for Michael D event. We made sure it was, uh, you know, we got, we had so many people from so many different backgrounds and so many different uh, walks of life to su- coming out and to supporting him. The only difficulty with the campaign, as I say, was that people kept telling us on canvases, there's no need to give me a leaflet. I'm already, already voting for Michael D. Why are we even having this election? We heard uh, there that. There was a few missteps. Yeah,
2: I mean, so. I, I think that Michael D. did what he needed to do. I do not think it was a great campaign. However, uh, I think that he, in the debates, yeah, he had a couple of lines that were memorable. Uh, but I don't think his performance, I wouldn't have rated it as an A performance or certainly not as good as I've seen him perform in other fora uh, on different occasions. I think, again, he did what he had to do, did what he needed to do. The other thing is, I actually think that uh, he should have participated in all the debates. I, I I mean, I know that he cited his schedule and everything else uh, but I think somebody seeking re-election to that office, I think he owes it to the people uh, to participate in all the debates. Uh, and that's, I mean, again, I, 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 that's going against what I said. I mean, I think my, Michael D. deserves a second term. I voted for him, et cetera. But uh, I think the campaign was not great. Uh, on Sinn Féin, uh, I think, in, in Mary Lou McDonald has indicated that, that she has a challenge ahead of her. Uh, clearly, this campaign was nowhere near as successful. I would say the her performance was very, very weak, um, given their party support. Uh, the question then becomes, how does she manage all of this, and the other one? wild card in this. Given Sinn Féin is a left-wing party, an avowedly left-wing party, there's an interesting phenomenon here that 25% of, of so-called Sinn Féin supporters backed Peter Casey with their first preference vote. So this unwieldy tent that uh, Mary Lou MacDonald has to has to now deal with, I suppose, has thrown up some of the challenges ahead of her. But the, the thing about that, Larry, does, uh, th- that nearly suggests that Peter Casey is
3: not left-wing, that he's right-wing. He's both. Personally, I haven't a clue what the man is. I don't think he has any coherence. He's opportunistic, his, I think, might yeah, be the yeah, best yeah, way to he's describe it. no coherence to his politics at all. Uh, the reality, in terms of his search, to my mind, is that he made a comment about travellers oh, Let's, let's hold him off him on
0: Peter Casey then for a moment because uh, well, once we get into Peter Casey I yeah, don't know oh, how we climb, yeah. climb back out <laughs> of that hole <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um,
1: Could I just say one more thing yeah. about the Michael D campaign because I do think again we're being a little unfair I mean what I saw during the campaign was real galvanising of young people particularly coming out of Michael D to support Michael D a fantastic head office staffed by many people who'd come out of the Together Free yes movement around the repeal the 8th referendum so it was a very strong campaign the difficulty as I say with it was when somebody is in President, there's already such a well of popularity there that, you know, the canvassing, as I say, seemed somewhat, uh, people saw it as somewhat unnecessary. And the other thing, of course, was that in terms of the debates, that is difficult, I think, for an incumbent president to manage. And you could see that. And I think he was right to, to limit himself. And I would say this, and I think Larry will confirm this, for the US presidency, there's only, there's a much smaller number of debates required of presidential candidates. Isn't that right? Well, in the general election, there, not was, the primary. there was a sense, Larry, towards the end of the campaign that nobody could take any more debates. The debates themselves oh, yeah. seem to just That's be reruns enough. of the same questions <laughs> yeah. over yeah. and over. But even for political anoraks like mm. myself and others, they became very but tedious. To, and to I be think fair, we need though. to look at, you know, really should we just have... Th- two, three set piece debates that become the big focuses. And beyond that, is there is there a need for endless reruns of the same questions? But
3: in reality, there was no opposition. I mean, apart from the... the but that's the, the way it
1: materialised, Mick. I mean, well, I mean it I became know, uh, If that you go way. back even
3: to the opinion polls at the very outset, it, there wasn't much, it, was, it wasn't as bad for the vanquished as it turned out to be. But you look at it also in the context of the whole political establishment we're all behind Michael D, largely because I would suggest Finnefall and Finnegoel, apart from the cost of it, realised the man had that level of popularity. And I'm not doing him down, I'm only making the point that he, he won and he got a fantastic vote. And personally, I'm glad he's back there. But let's face it, there was no opposition they
0: op- at, the, at the outset and we will talk about Casey in a moment but at the outset you would have looked at the lineup and said the opposition would be leonie reeda and sean Gallagher. Yes. as in yes. that you know yeah. it would and be really the between the three of them they that's what you would have said at the start and,
1: and that's my point is that they did appear more substantial at the start of the campaign than it materialized that they were towards the end and i suppose you could say Mick that you know finnfall and Fianna Gael clearly made good political decisions oh, yeah, given yeah. the result and Absolutely, that they yeah. wouldn't it wouldn't have been a good idea I'm for not, them strategically the only it.
3: point I'm making is in terms of Terms of the opposition, and you look at Sean Galler, and I think the phenomenon there, and I think this was obvious to a lot of people before the campaign even started. He hit on something in 2011, mm. he was nearly in a position to exploit complete disenchantment with anything to do with what you might call establishment politics. Out of which, notwithstanding his, his own position over here, Michael D came, he nearly grasped on yeah. that. Arguably, he was done a disservice in, in the final week, but that was a point in time, and the notion that that could be replicated, I think was so far-fetched, and that dragged yeah. in the mm. other two dragons as well
0: there, into the race. There's a great line in in uh, your man, Fear, Bob Woodward's new book, uh, where... Steve, when Steve Bannon comes on board the Trump campaign that he has a conversation with Trump and he says to him uh, America's ready for a change agent and you can be that change agent and when I read it I thought that was Sean Gallagher in 2011 mm. like as yeah. in yeah. the, the country was kind of looking for a change or someone who would embody you know something new in a non-executive Whereas, fashion though, that's yeah. the other
3: thing someone that would embody something without actually being in charge of well, anything it's, it's the know?
1: essence of a protest vote I mean yeah. that's what you're talking about not a real change agent but somebody who can symbolise change exactly. yeah symbolise protest and symbolise a a challenge to the establishment and you're absolutely right I think that's what Sean Gallagher represented in 2011 and this time round of course that vote went elsewhere it went to one of his fellow He was a
0: funny campaign because he he people who know him and I've spoken to people who know him who would say he didn't seem himself on the campaign Mm. and when you talk to him it's all this corporate slogan speak and I interviewed him yesterday and he told me about the only time you're looking down is when you're helping someone up Uh, he had another quote about the only things you regret are the things you do not do but he was quoting some book that he had read about a woman who worked in a hospice he started his speech last night in Dublin Castle with that Teddy Roosevelt quote about you know the people in the arena Mm. covered in dust which anyone who's had an annoying roommate in college will know from some (laughs) stupid poster he had in the living room. (laughs) You know, it it was all this sloganeering and and no connection compared to and we will come to Casey, but Casey's actually kind of likeable in person when you meet, you know what I mean? He's has that kind of attraction or human human. factor. I must say
1: about Sean Gallagher's speech last night, for those of us there listening or anyone listening to it, it sounded like it was the speech he would have made had he won. I mean, it was slightly, it was quite uncomfortable listening because it was so full of that sort of real, I suppose, platitude, but more appropriate platitudes to somebody who was just... Who's just m- marking a victory? Yeah, but it was a you, very. You odd know what? Speech. I bet you. And it was very long.
0: Knowing, having spoken to him. Uh, I bet he's the type who wouldn't have written a concession speech
2: because of the power probably of positive think mental probably, thinking. But, but I mean, whatever about positive thinking. Fundamentally, you have to wonder what he was at. I mean, I, I just don't understand. There didn't seem to be any rationale or any solid focus to, to to the campaign this time, other than a seeming sentiment that he was wronged last time and that this was his due this time. Uh, I couldn't get it at all. And it just whatever about the energy he might have had on the campaign trail in the debates, uh, he just seemed kind of listless. There just wasn't a whole lot there. The, yeah, the, the, whole, the whole scripted thing that you're
3: referring to I mean, to me, that was it would strike me that at the end of the last campaign, that night of the front line debate, he was shown not to be Very experienced or being able to think on his feet or ever to deal with the issue as it arose. And that haunted him. So he comes around and he turns around and, by God, he's going to be scripted this time. But he goes to the other extreme. I mean, that video about (laughs) river dancing. River dancing across the world. (laughs) And putting him under pressure. Oh my
2: God. The ultimate cringe, I think, that video. Yeah, that
0: would have worked with an American audience, (laughs) (laughs) not an Irish audience. Uh, We were talking about uh, Lini Rita. Let's go back to her for just a moment because, uh, Vanna, it's amazing when you actually look at the figures. Mary Lou had about 6,000 first preference votes in Dublin Central uh, in the last general election, and Leonie Rita had 1,700 votes uh, yesterday, first preference, in in that constituency. You go up to Loud's, where Gerry Adams and Imelda Munster were up around Mm -hmm. the 15,000 mark in terms of first preferences between them, and she's, I don't know, a couple of thousand first preference votes as well. Lots and lots of Sinn Féin voters went out on Friday and voted for someone else yes, other it, than it, Leonie Rita. It, it
1: was extraordinary and I mean we watched Dublin Central with great interest as you say because of course it was it's Mary Lou MacDonald's constituency. We'd run a very strong campaign for Michael D. there, a lot of groundwork canvassing. Joe Costello, of course our Labour representative there had been running the campaign there and uh, so we were delighted that it was so strong for Michael D. in that particular constituency but it was particularly noteworthy how low uh, Leonie Rita's poll was. I think you know there's a whole range of different reasons but certainly Sinn Féin must be regretting that they didn't make her, given that she was a a candidate from inside the party and not an outside candidate, Mm. I think they're probably regretting they didn't make her more clearly Sinn Féin. I mean, it was remarkable that there was no party logo on the posters, uh, that she was in the beginning attempting to distance herself, it seemed, from Sinn Féin with the comments about the poppy, which then appeared to backfire among party faithful in Sinn Féin. But it's very hard to know. I mean, I I was very surprised by how little of the Sinn Féin vote she won, but I was also surprised she wasn't a stronger performer Mm. on media during the campaign as somebody who has run a European election as she had and has won it Mm. you know I think we all had expected her, all of us from whatever party expected her to be more substantial. And mm. having said that, you know, to be fair to her last night, I thought her concession speech was by far the best. Yeah, <laughs> actually, been, it was a lovely speech. I, yeah, yeah. I,
2: I actually thought she would have been stronger in terms of drawing a line under the past. That's where I thought that her campaign was kind of predicated on was that this was a new face uh, of Sinn Féin, a Sinn Féin without the ties uh, in the past. We know the late Martin McGuinness stood in 2011 um, that this was something different, that this was a test running, uh, I suppose, a newer Sinn Féin, a new look Sinn Féin without any any clear links uh, to the IRA and that was one of the, p- the points that was underlying the campaign and seeing uh, if Sinn Féin might grow some of its base and attract new voters. That didn't seem to feature much in uh, on the radar of, of this campaign at all uh, and I was surprised that she didn't underscore that point at every opportunity, quite She might frankly. have been
1: trying with the poppy. I mean, that's how I thought the same as you, Larry, at the beginning and that I thought that's why there's no Sinn Féin logo on the poster. It's trying to reach out as a campaign but mm-hmm. I think they then rode back after the poppy comments didn't seem to go down well Party supporters. That's a guess now mm, as to what mm. as to they, why they also are very late British.
3: coming to it. Yeah. I mean, I think for somebody who did not have widespread recognition at all to introduce her so late, um, yeah. go back to Mary Robinson, start when it was it April, May of, of the year for the November election? Yeah,
1: some say even before that, yeah, fact, yeah.
3: but to, to, to introduce her so late, I think was, um, was a major problem. But also, you have to put it in context take any of the political parties, somebody who Entered politics, as far as I know, she wasn't even a, a councillor or local representative prior to the European elections. Somebody who entered politics, first term MEP, and thrown onto the national stage in this manner, it'd be a very big task for yeah. anybody, mm-hmm. to be fair, you know?
0: Yeah, look, we better take a very quick outbreak. Ivana Larry and make her staying with us going nowhere. Words matter. Words can hurt. Words can heal. Words can empower.
1: Words can divide. And the words and ideas I have used in this
2: campaign reflect a vision for Ireland based on four strands, equal and together, strong, sustainable communities, sharing
1: history, shaping the future, and Ireland's voice matters.
0: Yes, Michael D Higgins speaking down in Dublin Castle yesterday. Yesterday evening, when he was re-elected, Julie re-elected uh, president of Ireland for another seven years. Ivana, Patrick, Larry Donnelly, and Mick Clifford are with me in studio. Ivana, he's talking about Peter Casey. There was he?
1: <laughs> well, he certainly didn't mention him by name and rightly um but his his speech I thought was very important in terms of asserting that alternative vision of Ireland that he'd been asserting throughout his campaign and uh, indeed throughout his presidency for the last seven years which is the need to build an inclusive Ireland a republic based on equality but that comment about words was really I thought really powerful when he said that last night uh, and uh, you know I think everyone in the everyone felt yeah. yes there's a there's a <laughs> message there's an underlying subtle message there about the power of words to hurt and certainly one of the things that was unfortunate about the campaign was that uh, with Casey particularly there was it seemed there was a real tendency to just lash out with words as if words don't matter and without thinking through the s- substance or portent of what you're saying and that's something I suppose we associate with a kind of populist rhetoric around politics that we see with, with Trump not to compare Casey necessarily to Trump because as Brendan Howland said when he was asked was, was Casey the Irish Trump yesterday by some reporter Tr- uh, ha- Brendan just said well Trump won which I think is, is <laughs> a, a point and there's a very funny piece by John Lee saying that of course uh, Peter Casey is more Mick Wallace than Donald Trump. The only, yeah, the only thing piece, yeah. the only thing Peter Casey and Donald Trump have in common, says John Lee in the mail today, is their disjointed thinking and in and inarticulacy. Which is uh, rather sharp, but I mean the point I think is about words mattering, yeah. and that that didn't seem to be apparent, or didn't seem to be something that the that, that Casey and parti- Peter Casey in particular seemed to take to seem to think of. He would just say things without them necessarily having any basis uh, in fact or in evidence. And certainly some of his comments were, of course, very problematic and and really very uh, troubling.
0: To Larry, think? we're wildly in favour of cheap plugs on this show, and I know you had your uh, your sixpence uh, on the journal last night so what was your interpretation
2: well I mean I, I think one can agree with the the, the merits of everything that Ivana has said but there is no denying that Peter Casey's words struck a chord uh, with an awful lot of people. You do not go from 2% in the polls to over 20% showing a tenfold catapult catapult uh, in that short space of time unless you've done so. Uh, and the line that I heard repeatedly from people was, he's only saying what everyone thinks. Uh, and that, that's for, both with respect to the traveling community and with respect to uh, social welfare fraud, um, and social welfare abuse, uh, that there was something in this. Uh, and that these it, these attitudes are bubbling under the surface all the time, but we don't talk about them. We don't have an airing of these issues. And Colin Murphy, I would really encourage anybody to read Colin Murphy in the Sunday Business Post uh, today because he actually argues that in a strange way perhaps uh, Peter Casey has done the country a service by the by by virtue of bringing what everyone thinks to the table and putting it out there in public because the only way you grapple with these things is, is to have an honest dialogue about it. If you let them continue to bubble under the surface and bubble and bubble and bubble, eventually you wind up with a backlash and a backlash uh, of epic proportions such as we've seen in Europe and such as we've seen in the United States with Donald Trump make. I'd agree very much um, I would, you know, I mean just referencing there
3: um, uh, Colin Murphy's uh, column just a quick look at it, he mentions that Casey, uh, two key rows that Casey sparked on traveller identity and on welfare are deep fissures in Irish society. I disagreed on what is he his issue. I prefer that they were settled, but they're not. Given that, better that they be aired than ignored. Better to know where Irish opinion lies in them than be surprised by it in an election where more is at stake. Better to win the argument than simply succeed in suppressing it, as was the implicit intent of those who called for Casey to withdraw from the campaign. And I think that is spot on. As with Larry, that's definitely the feedback I got from a lot of people. And And you have to face the issue. There is a problem out there in sections of rural Ireland. If you look at places where Casey got a high vote, look, travelers have had an awful time, they've been discriminated. There's absolutely no doubt in the world the statistics are there, the life stories are there, there's no question. There is another side to that, and that is the mores of some of the travellers, not all of them, but neither is it a question of a few rotten apples, are in serious conflict with those of people in the settled communities in certain areas. And that issue needs to be explored. That phrase, a conversation needs to be opened up. And it would be no bad thing if Michael D Higgins Mm. made that. Uh, one of his aims in his second uh, term in office, on the basis that this is an ancient problem. This is not something that has arisen from austerity or whatever. This has been there for a long time and it continues to be there. And it's better, as Murphy points out in, in the newspaper, these things should be spoken about because if you suppress them, as seems to be the case, and some people, for instance, blaming the media, now I'll blame the media for a lot, but saying that the media gave uh, Casey further voice yeah. and that this inflated the whole thing, I don't buy that the, for a second. The media-
0: Media can be really prickly about criticism, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll admit that. And yeah, there, yeah. and there is an a, you, you can accuse the media of maybe dancing to Peter Katie's tune to a degree and everything in everything the last few days but what annoys me about those accusations is the use of the word blame because it implies that there's something wrong with voting for Peter exactly, Casey exactly people are entitled to vote absolutely. for Peter Casey yes. and the idea that it's wrong it feeds into this problem completely it's, you know, that, that it's back to the suppressing it you know, there must
3: be a reason There's some yeah. somebody has dragged these people astray it must be the media or Casey mm. or whatever rather than dealing with what is an actual issue out there unfortunately.
1: Well I do agree with Mick of of course there is an issue clearly and Liam Weeks has a good piece in the Sunday Independent about that as well alongside Neil Horan's interview with Peter Casey Um, and clearly there are huge issues around the treatment of travellers in Irish society around life expectancy educational attainment uh, health figures all as you say Mick all the figures are there lack of integration uh, lack of uh, often simply uh, lack of communities having any interaction action whatsoever and that's Liam Week's point is that there's a misunderstanding between settled communities and traveller communities in many cases and we do need to address that but obviously there's a way of addressing it and lashing oh, and lashing out is not the, the but right way When the conversation
3: way. isn't there Ivana that's how people react when well, somebody does I, out. And I
1: would say this also about Peter Casey that I think it wasn't just what he was saying it was also and I'm, I wouldn't blame I think you're right about. It, it's, it's, of course there's no point in blaming anyone for anything you know this was an election and, and Peter Casey was a candidate and people of course are entitled to vote for who they choose but i think the point about peter casey was that he did lead headlines because he was saying things that nobody else was saying and because he was uh, lashing out in a, in a in a way that is different to the way in which most president most of the other presidential candidates mm. were speaking which was more measured and more careful and so on and uh, and as a result he was getting more headlines and there was certainly a good deal of name recognition there which he had and which the others lacked and he clearly also then became the focal point for an anti-establishment protest vote for those who were unhappy with with all sorts of things, and I think that probably the comments about welfare may have had, I think, probably more of an impact even than the well, earlier comments. With great respect, it. what
3: you're suggesting there again is that basically this was not an issue of Casey and I agree with you the way he did it was completely out of order but not an, a, a question of him hitting a nerve or striking a chord with people but that there were other circumstances around it rather than the fact that that, that issue is out there
1: oh, no, I, no no I'm saying he did strike a nerve absolutely with people I think he, I suspect the nerve went deeper or was, had more impact when he spoke about welfare dependency it's a huge issue we hear that all the time on doorsteps um, but I think it was also the fact that he then became a focal point for people who were voting on other reasons as well so I don't think one can Put it down to simply a comment. One comment he made. I think it was the way his campaign was run. I think there was also, and Kieran, you said it earlier. There was a, the sense that he was somebody who was a bit more, a bit less. Um, there was a bit less of a distance. He was more. He was more approachable, and the way he spoke was more direct. I think, and there was something in that as well that appealed
2: to people. Larry. That, well, I mean, there's no question that the the the, the traveller comment. Is what got the attention. Yeah, that got the attention of uh, grabbed everybody's attention, uh, and obviously won some conv- converts very quickly. But that then allowed him to riff a bit more, if you put it like that, uh, about social welfare and other issues. Was and and again and again, I mean, you know, the the issue becomes how do we engage with this sentiment that's out there? Uh, and I think Mick is absolutely right. I mean, this needs to be out in the open, as Colin Murphy has said in the Business Post. This needs to be out in the open and needs to be discussed. It's really important that we don't let these things bubble <laughs> under the surface because the wise old heads will. Tell Tell us that Peter Casey is a footnote, he will go away, that there's no room with in, in a general election given the construct the Irish political system for these sentiments to take hold and for there to be a right wing movement and all that. That's a little bit overwrought I think uh, because again it is remarkable that this man who's a total outsider, a total unknown, was able to get 23% of the first preference vote. That is remarkable by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. The other thing about that is that if you don't have a conversation that is beyond what people
3: who vote for Casey seem to believe. They believe that if anything is said, for example, in the context of Travellers, it's either you're prejudiced or you're racist against them or you're not and that there are no circumstances that might sway people's opinions or whatever. If you don't explore that and have that kind of conversation and see what's actually going on out there, then you're going to have next June, I think it is, the local elections. Be under no illusion. There are councillors in in parties and in no parties, independents, who've seen what Casey Mm. achieved here and they will try to exploit that. And again, you'll have it thrown out there in a crude, coarse manner that does nobody any good but it'll be exploited if those areas are not explored
1: Well I think Mick's right and yeah. it does behove all of us to uh, particularly in politics to <laughs> to try and ensure we have that conversation between now and next June and that we address people's concerns and fears and that we also try to bring in and hear more from the traveller people in the traveller community I was on a show about talking about blasphemy in fact but uh, last week but Martin Collins from Pave Point was on just before and you know he was and I thought it's great to hear him speak it's great to hear him speak about being a traveler growing up in Ireland as a traveller about his experiences which most of us in the settled community simply don't know enough about and I think we do need uh, to have a conversation that's genuinely a conversation in other words that includes members of the traveller community and hears from them and hears about their own concerns about their culture and about how they they and we can get on in the future and I do agree also that as as President Michael D. Higgins should uh, also play a role in that in trying to ensure there is a proper dialogue I think he will I think that's a big part going to be a big part of his presidency is trying to ensure a dialogue between different sections of of society.
0: Larry, I suppose with, with lots of talk around about, uh, you know, populism and nationalism and all that, that there is there is then with this uh, talk about platforming. Who do you give a platform to? And, you know, who, who's, whose opinions are most valid or valid of airing? And there seems to be, and I wonder is then, is, is Peter Casey or the popularity of his comments an inevitable result of the fact that there's a difference between challenging people's opinions and challenging people's expression of opinions. Do you know what I mean? That that we've become, and in the media, we as well, have become fixated on challenging people's expressions of opinions. Rather, you know, you're not allowed to say that as opposed to you shouldn't think that. And here's why you shouldn't think it. Rather, you're not allowed to say that. But if you say that to someone, they just they don't say it, but they still think it.
2: Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. I mean, there's there's a fine line there, I think, between the two. Uh, and I, I, like Mick and like yourself, I mean, the the, the criticism against the media this time, I, I really reject it out of hand, to be quite frank. Uh, I don't know what the media could have done here other than cover the presidential campaign uh, and cover these comments. And I mean, the, that's the reality of the situation. Uh, and I think that some of the people who would have rallied to Casey, and you, see the, you saw this on social media and elsewhere, um, they wouldn't be uh, fans of traditional media. They wouldn't be fans of uh, people in the so-called Dublin establishment. Uh, They would view a disconnect between their ordinary lives uh, and what happens here in the dialogue that they hear typically uh, in the media. So I think that worked uh, to Casey's uh, advantage and worked to his effect. Um, The question then becomes, uh, what do we make Uh, of this movement? What do we make of this 23% vote? Uh, Is it going to be a footnote or is there something more uh, that could be in the works here? Uh, That's the open question, politically speaking. Uh, I think we're wrong if we make too much of it, but I think on the other hand, we're wrong if we dismiss it out of hand.
3: I, I I don't think Casey as Peter Casey as a political figure is going anywhere. To be honest, fine fall
2: he's going to?
0: But <laughs> well, well they were. This is what they were hinting at you yesterday. You know, there'll a, be a big announcement tomorrow. Can, I can you, think you imagine that's
3: it. the grief Mihal Martin would have when <laughs> Peter Casey is one of his TDs? He could well do, but I don't think as he, he certainly. I d- put it this way. Sorry, I don't believe he'll be a major political figure or even a rallying uh, point for people who are disaffected in, in any form or another. I think he stumbled across this on the basis that, remember he was the very last of all the candidates. He could end up in the door, though. He
2: could end up in the I think he'd be immediately extremely frustrated as just one backbench exactly. voice in the Dáil. I don't exactly. think the Dáil is for him. No. No, well he's I going to be T-shock Larry, read the full <laughs> headline. <laughs>
1: I think uh, my own feeling on it, uh, watching the campaign this week was that we may well see him running for Europe for the North West constituency. For, that's uh, good point. Because that's the sort of platform, I think you're right, about the Dáil not being a big enough stage you know for somebody who's just gone through a presidential election And people will take well it as serious
3: as they would a doll election we've, Well we've, seen, we've seen that sort yeah, of yeah.
1: rhetoric I, th- I think have more impact yeah. in a European election than in a doll election I mean one of the points being made in, in one of the some of the commentary is Renewa has gone nowhere but I see they're ho- hoping to welcome Peter Casey into their folds
2: so. Alright <laughs> Wouldn't well, that be an interesting <laughs> dynamic uh, Luke Ming Flanagan and Peter Casey MEPs <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it I suspect it might be one or the other <laughs> not both uh, We were <laughs> a the presidential
0: election for a few minutes. You are listening to On the Record. Mick Clifford, Ivana Bachik, and Larry Donnelly are still with me in studio. We are going to set the presidential election aside for just a few minutes. Jared Howland and Sean Defoe will be with me after 12 uh, to discuss it, uh, aspects of it again in, in a little more detail. But I want to turn now, Mick, uh, to a story. John Mooney actually is writing about it in, in the Sunday Times today. And it's um, John Barrett, the head of HR with Gardee, who uh, has been suspended. Uh, Drew Harris sought his suspension because he was a civilian. Department of Justice needed to give it the OK. Uh, I was speaking to John Mooney during the week. What's your take on, on all of this?
3: Well, a, John Barr is an interesting figure to this extent. He was the most senior civilian to be brought into the Gardaí at a time of civil, they were trying to civilianise of the management. He mm. was brought in. He came from the corporate world. He was highly regarded. Then we had a scenario last year, the Temple Moor uh, financial irregularities. He comes before the PAC. And he contradicts Noreen O'Sullivan about a meeting she said was a cup of tea where nothing was conveyed. He said it was a two hour meeting and he had had notes, (laughs) he had minutes from it. And he was very much complimented and very much seen as this idea of somebody from outside the Garda culture coming in and brushing it a bit clean and having a different approach. And he was regarded as something of a stand up guy, to use that phrase at that point. Then you roll on to Charlton. And he came out with some allegations, one in particular that a senior colleague had said to him at a meeting that they were going to get Morris McCabe at the O'Higgins Commission. And not alone did he not have had to back it up, he suggested he had told another senior Garda and then it turned out that afternoon that he'd actually told him after he'd issued a statement to the tribunal. And in the report there a few weeks ago, Judge Charlton said a lot of his evidence had an imaginative Element to it. It was fluid, yeah. Aspects of it. And now it seems like he's some conflict with him and some other, to the point that Drew Harris, the new commissioner, asked the Department of Justice. Uh, in order to, to have him suspended he can't do it himself because he's not a sworn mm. member and that now was granted so he is somebody certainly in terms of his public profile I think you could say it went from hero to zero but uh, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how that develops one other quick element to it yeah. one of the issues that Charton brought up and was brought up by Fred Morris performed the Morris Tribunal is how difficult disciplinary procedures are within Ungardi Shikana if somebody is deemed to have done something wrong and how hard it is for them to lose their job it'll be interesting to see if it's as convoluted dealing
0: with a civilian member of management
3: yeah. if he comes under pressure as, as seems to be the where case Where does now. it
0: leave civilianisation of, of the force where is that now
3: Well, I think that that, that's continuing and I'd imagine it would actually continue further under Drew Harris in terms of a general approach to things in order to ensure that the actual members of the Gardaí are more on the front line. But it would seem that Mr Barrett has been something of a dividing figure in HQ and uh, Drew Harris has come to the conclusion that um, he he, he thinks he should be uh, suspended. But John Barrett is is, uh, contesting that as well through his own um, legal people.
0: Ivana, Drew Harris was before the Rockless Justice Committee during the week and some of your uh, colleagues in the Shannon were were, were questioning him as well as TDs. And look, he got a a fairly easy ride. I assume that will kind of dissipate once there is an inevitable scandal.
1: Well, there is an awful sense of inevitability about that and it's just the product of so many years and of so many uh, revelations about issues within the Gardaí, problems within the Gardaí over a series of reports when I mean, Mick mentions the Morris report and of course a lot of reforms were then instituted including the policing authority which was something we had been pressing for in the Labour Party for a long time uh, but I mean even even with that obviously that's not long in place. We've still seen then since then all these other uh, issues. I must say you know looking back at the Gearin report, looking back at the policing inspectorate report from uh, I think four years ago now, one of the issues they identified and it, it it's 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 really alongside that difficulty with disciplinary procedures is the lack of supervision the lack of uh, procedures in place for proper management of cases and that was a huge issue in the Gearin report where they were looking at specific mishandling of different cases yeah. including some very very serious files where in da- actually probationer guardie had been left pretty much on their own to deal with these and therefore there had been very sloppy handling a lot of a lot of, uh, of, of things falling between the cracks a lot of failures to I mean, you know, i worked in criminal defence for many years and really, you know, the system was so creaky then and, you know, it was supposed to have moved on then with um, with Pulse, with digitalisation. That's a huge part alongside civilianisation, making the uh, Guardian more professional. Oh, it was and interesting so when the, he
0: talked about digitalisation at yeah, the Oireachtas Committee and yes. he made the point, you know if that the management of resources is a big part of his job, and how difficult it is to manage resources when everything exists on paper.
1: But the policing inspectorate made this point four <laughs> years ago. Noreen O'Sullivan, as commissioner, had come in, and again, I was on the Justice Committee then. And we were, I remember, we were questioning her. And again, at that point, early on in her term, what proved to be very short term, of course, but early on then, everybody was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt. She was coming in as a reformer, and I think people forget that. And, you know, and then, but again, the same sort of problems and the civilian people I mean Mick mentions this like Barrett were seen as the new uh, hope for the Gardaí that they would transform procedures and make things more professional within it but through it all you always get the sense that comes out in Charlton's report as well which we debated in the Shannad this week but it was somewhat overshadowed by all the other political goings on but the point that Charlton makes is you know frontline officers doing their best but in conditions where a lot of uh, in conditions where lack of management structures lack of proper um, proper supervision uh, lack of proper or digitalization, appalling physical conditions in many garter stations, and and really this sort of struggle against a huge problem with, within the culture too. This culture of defensiveness and failure to take responsibility and accountability. So you know, I think everyone wants Jew, Drew Harris and uh, to uh, be able to to be given the space to turn it around. We've got the blueprint now with the um, with the O'Toole Commission report as to how to reform the structures. But there is this awful sense that it's mm. it's all, now you know it, that it's too big to change. Having said that, you know. Patton did it in the north in a far mm. more intractable situation with the RUC. You know, incredible change with PSNI. You just need the political will to do it. And I think it's there now. I think having gone through, you know, it's, it's, it's two, two retirements in quick succession, I think now with Drew Harris, there is a desire to just move things forward.
0: Uh, Larry, we're, we're, we're kind of running low on time and I wanted to ask you about something else. Um, this shooting in the States at the synagogue, uh, I... I was locked in this booth in Dublin mm-hmm. Castle yesterday, so I kind of missed all news really, uh, and so I was catching up on this uh, last night. Um, Eleven fatalities, I think, is is what it's at, and Donald Trump speaking afterwards, suggesting that if the, if someone was armed inside the temple, it would have been kind of you know only one casualty, and it would have been the shooter, uh, but. This alongside the parcel bombs, they're all kind of being lumped together. And the conversation is about the type of rhetoric that's used in, in US politics. Do you buy into that?
2: Well, I mean, look, first, first, the the, the latest shooting. I mean, I, I despair and I've written and spoken about this before. I despair. I mean, you have this guy who's a, a gun nut. That's the only word to describe him and a truly evil person with access to an arsenal and goes and kills those people. Words can't express, uh, you know, what that means and how that it happens. And obviously to the families, all we can do is send sympathy. Um, In terms of Trump's rhetoric, yeah, Trump's rhetoric is inflammatory and way over the top and and disgusting and creates uh, an unfortunate uh, climate for politics in the United States. Uh, Whether it stretches so far or whether it can be linked, uh, I suppose, directly to uh, the actions of a madman, which this person who who assembled these bombs and sent them to people, uh, I'm not sure you can make that direct link between the two. Uh, But what is for sure uh, is that Trump has coarsened and continues to coarsen uh, political rhetoric and political dialogue. which we've spoken about here, Uh, he brings it down to a lowest common denominator level, uh, and I think that's piteous for uh, the United States and for American democracy.
0: No, you don't see any recovery of that rhetoric in, say, midterms, after midterms. It's well, nice I mean, election. look, I mean,
2: if you want a prediction, I mean, I think that the Democrats will probably retake the House, but I think Republicans will hold the Senate. Uh, I think that will give Democrats an opportunity to be a thorn in the president's side. Yeah, How much of a thorn, for
0: people who aren't listening, how much of a thorn can you be if you're in charge of the House but not the Senate? Well,
2: in turn, I mean, look, the Senate is high profile over here because it controls judicial nominations, yeah. but all legislation must pass through both both houses. So if the if the House effectively becomes a break on it, it can Trump's agenda. That having been said, there is also the point that Trump might dearly like to have the House taken over by Democrats because that way, when he seeks re-election in 2020, he can run for re-election effectively against Nancy Pelosi, who might be the only political figure uh, in the United States who's f- more deeply unpopular than he is. Okay, Although so his
1: popularity ratings have depressingly been rising, have gone up, haven't yeah, they? He's around 45 percent. Even while honest. they're predicting that Democrats will retake the House this time around. And there was some talk that they might that if that happened, they might be able to institute institute impeachment
2: well, proceedings well, against they, Trump. And they, isn't that
1: still a possibility? They, they, so
2: they certainly could not institute impeachment proceedings, but they can't get it past the Senate. Yeah. There's no way they'll get two thirds of senators to go along with it. And also that might have a political cost for them, because if they are seen to institute impeachment proceedings on less than absolutely firm, rock solid grounds, if it seemed to be politically motivated, the American people will react against it. Did, did, there, Craig, there's we, one
3: echo with what went on here decades ago, I, I think a certain echo, and that is if you look at the way Ian Paisley Use rhetoric, and that whereas he did not direct anybody to go out and kill anybody, that was the type of inspiration. And they, they actually, in I remember various documentaries where people in the UVF and organizations like that said that they, they were inspired as a result of the way Paisley had uh, pitted everything with his rhetoric. And you know, there's elements of that there with Trump. now I think uh, the, the way he's coursing it to that extent, you're going to get riling the crazies. I thought I saw a headline somewhere. You're mm. you're, you're, you're going yeah. to get I that know. out there. He doesn't want he doesn't necessarily want anyone to go and do it, but you're 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 letting loose that beast. Like
1: it's certainly something you can't help but think. Yeah. I mean, this was so such a horrible, horrible, brutal attack, and so clearly motivated by anti-Semitism. But yeah. you know, and Trump has of course stoked a kind of a fear of minorities, a kind a, a divisive. And us graphic. and
0: them, yeah. yeah. I look on that note, Mick. Clifford, Ivana Bacic and Larry Donnelly, thanks a million for coming in on a Sunday morning. We're going to be back after this quick break.